I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Building your own bike might seem a bizarre anachronism in these days of sophisticated high technology, but the new book argues it's just what we need. Even more controversially, its author suggests that unless you're a world tour pro, you don't need 11-speed electronic gears and carbon everything. Also on this edition, we trace the path of rising talent Kristen Faulkner, from Alaska via Harvard to the hills of Flanders. This is Ruler Conversations, brought to you by Lacquer, bicycle insurance powered by the community. There's been a new name towards the top of the results sheets of the Women's World Tour this season. Kristen Faulkner, riding for the UCI Continental Team, Tipco Silicon Valley Bank. Seventh in Gent-Wevelgem, tenth in the Tour of Flanders, not bad for a new pro in her first season in Europe. And her journey to the pro ranks has been an unusual one. 28 years old, she was still working as a venture capitalist in Silicon Valley until January this year. I caught up with her the day after her top 10 finish in the Ronda. Yeah, I mean, this has been my first kind of spring classics full season. So this was the culmination of all of it. And the race, you know, it was hard. Um, I tried to stay patient and conserve energy and then, in the very end, I was, I found myself kind of alone with a bunch of, with a group that had a lot of teams with teammates. And so a lot of teams had lead outs going into the Claremont and I kind of just got caught behind the pack and didn't have a good position going into the kind of penultimate climb and ended up missing kind of the front group. And so finished with the second group, but was still happy with that. So. And you're based in Belgium at the moment, are you? Yes. We have a team house in Nenove, right? We're the Amloop at Newsblad race finished. So we're staying here for about a two month race block at an Airbnb. What's it been like? Um, is the, has it been a bit of a culture shock? I think the riding has been a culture shock. So I'm from, I live in California right now where it's sunny most of the year. And I came over to Belgium and it was windy and rainy and, you know, the roads aren't perfectly smooth. And so, and then there's all the cobbles. And so I think for that, you know, just the riding is very different from what I'm used to along the California coastline where it's sunny and beautiful every day. And then I think living in a team house with girls, you know, we did that last October, September through October, but it's a, you know, it's a whole different experience being here back to back races for months at a time. So yeah, I mean, it's definitely a culture shock. I left my job January 31st. So I think the biggest thing for me 
is actually just becoming a full-time cyclist. That's been the biggest shock for me, just the lifestyle change and how much I can really devote to the sport now. Okay, we'll talk a little bit about your your work and your kind of route into cycling. But you were born in Alaska, um, which which is kind of a, an unusual place for pro cyclists to come from. Yes, it's definitely a land where I guess there's more skiers and ice skaters than there are cyclists. I grew up doing sports my whole life. I'm from a really small town. In the summers and the winters, everything was outdoors. We were sledding, we were skiing, we were kayaking, fishing. And so the outdoors are really our playground. And so when I moved to New York City after college, I just really missed being in the outdoors. And so I wanted to find an activity in Central Park. And I really missed sports. And so the two kind of fit together. And that's when I picked up cycling. But before that, you were at Harvard and and you were a, a rower at Harvard, which is, again, is, is pretty impressive. Yeah, it's something about these masochist sports. It's just, you know, the, the, the endurance sports. That, um, so I had started rowing in high school and then I continued rowing in college. And it, you know, I just really missed being part of that team aspect, but I really enjoyed the endurance sports as well. And so, yeah, I mean, when I moved to New York, I was working in a competitive job and I just, I really missed being part of a team. And I think being in a new city, not having that sense of community that I'd had my whole life through my sports was just something that I really missed. And I'm very fortunate that I found it through cycling. So, so you turned up in Central Park kind of looking to start cycling but not knowing much about it is that right yeah I had done some triathlons as a kid but you know the kind of running shorts and sneakers type triathlons you know when I'm 10 um (laughs) and so showed up to an introductory women's clinic in Central Park in running shorts and sneakers and had no idea what clip and pedals were I realized I was the odd man out or odd woman out so I showed up the next time and I brought clip in pedals and I was so proud and I went to go clip in and I had gotten like Keo cleats with SPD SL pedals or something completely off. And so I couldn't clip in. So I was riding around with shoes that didn't clip in. And then I just went through a series of completely not knowing what I was doing. And then <laughs> um, I had a bike that was way too big for me. But eventually I found this, you know, there's this group of people that were just really welcoming and compassionate and they really wanted to support new women in cycling. So they just kept welcoming me and every mistake I made, they just brushed it off and said, this is what you need to do. Like, come back next time. You know, you're, you're doing great. So I think having a really supportive community made all the difference because cycling can be, it can be a hard sport to enter sometimes and really intimidating the nice fancy gear and and all that. So I was really appreciative that the community in New York was so welcoming. But at what um, point on that sort of journey did you realize that actually you were quite good at this? I think there was one race in New York called the Dave Jordan Classic. It was actually named after the coach of the team who'd passed away. That race I went into and it was six laps of Central Park. And after the first lap, I went off and did a solo break and I stayed away for the rest of the race. And it was that race just being able to stay away from the pack after they were all trying to chase me. And I mean, on one hand, that would never happen in Europe. Like you would not try to break after the first lap. Like there's a lot of things that wouldn't happen. But that's when I realized that I was a strong rider. After that, it became a matter of can I learn bike handling skills? Can I learn to work in a Peloton? Can I learn all those things? And so I think, yeah, that the Dave Jordan Classic was when I realized I was a strong rider. And then I'm still working on the rest of the technique stuff. So 
you can come back to me in a few years and ask me when I realized I <laughs> was a, a good position, you know, getting the position in and stuff. So you moved from the East Coast to the West Coast. Was that because of your job? It was a combination of things. I am from Alaska, so it was closer to my parents uh, who still live there. I had siblings that lived in California. I enjoyed the warmer weather. I enjoyed the outdoors. And I also moved jobs because I found a company and a boss that I really, really admired and wanted to work for. And it was still in venture capital, but this firm Threshold Ventures, I just really, really liked the people there and really wanted to work for them. So everything kind of came together um, at the same time. I felt like California is better for riding. It was better weather. It was better for family and it was better for work. I had started thinking about moving before and then everything kind of fell together. And there's a good racing scene around San Francisco. There is. It's interesting. You know, in New York, there's races every weekend in Central Park and they all start really early, like 6 a.m. on Saturday. So you can ride your bike to the race and then get back home before anyone else has woken up from (laughs) their Friday night hangover when we're going out in the city. You can race every weekend that way. Um, The downside is that there's not a lot of variety. Whereas in California, there's a lot of variety and a lot of group rides, but to get to races, sometimes you have to travel by car. And so it can take up your whole weekend. So it's just a very different type of racing than what I had. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're longer races in California. So it, yeah, it was just, it was nice to see a different style of racing. Now you mentioned um, your work in, in venture capital. Um, I don't know much about venture capital, but I can't imagine it's a, it's an easy job or one that, you know, doesn't take up quite a lot of time. How do you, do you manage to kind of balance, you know, the training, the racing, uh, the working and everything right up until the start of this year? I don't know if I would say I balanced it versus like I survived it. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I was waking up at 5, 5.30 a.m., going on my rides, getting to work at 8.30, doing work, coming home exhausted. I always had leftover lunch for dinner. Didn't have a ton of time for my social life. And so I was working really hard and I was cycling really hard. I didn't have much time for anything else. And it just got to the point where I felt that... I wasn't giving myself hundred percent to cycling and I wasn't giving myself hundred percent to work. And I really wanted to give myself hundred percent to something. So I had to make a decision and that's ultimately why I left. Um, but yeah, while I was working full time, I would have Mondays off, which were our big partnership meeting at work. So I took my busiest day at work as my off day for cycling. And then I did long rides on the weekends and then my bosses were very, very generous and let me do a long ride on Wednesdays. And so I would show up late to work on Wednesdays and then leave late on Wednesdays. Tuesdays, Thursdays were intervals, uh, just kind of a two hour workout before work. And then Friday was an easy day. Is it almost a relief then to be a, a pro rider? It's definitely giving me the opportunity to give myself fully to cycling. And I've already, you know, in the two months that I've been not working full-time, I've seen a drastic change in just my recovery, my stress levels, how I'm able to devote myself to my workouts and my sleep, even just in terms of racing, having time to review the course, to study the competition, to watch races, you know, all of these things that I didn't have time to do before. And so I can just be a, such a better rider now than I could have if I were still working. So I feel 
you know, I really miss my job and I miss the people I was working with, but it's such a relief to be able to give myself full time to cycling. Well, it's obviously uh, working for you. Um, thank you so much for talking to us and, and good luck for the rest of 21. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. You're listening to Ruler Conversations, brought to you by LACA, bicycle insurance powered by the community. LACA's collective cover is made especially for cyclists, from the coffee and cake rider to the crit racer. LACA has transformed traditional insurance with no more fixed upfront premiums. Instead, your monthly contributions are based on the collective's claims that month. Your maximum monthly price is capped, but the savings are all yours. Plus, 80% of your money goes straight back into the Lacquer Collective, fixing, replacing and helping. And the other 20% keeps their wheels spinning. It's as simple as that. When things do go bad, Lacquer's got your back. Claims are handled by their team of cycling experts and usually agreed within a day with no depreciation or excess. They've ditched annual contracts locking you in. With Lacquer, if you want to leave, you can anytime. If you head over to www.lacquer.co, new customers can get their first 30 days free by signing up today with the discount code RULER. Now then, here's an infomercial message for the discerning folk of RULERland. For the finest long-form cycling journalism and exquisite photography and design, why don't you simply subscribe to RULER magazine? It costs as little as £7 per month. Regular columnists include Orla Shenwi, Roman Bardet and me, Ned Bolting, accompanied by features from the best writers and photographers in the business. Simply go to ruler.cc. You know it makes sense. So in an age when increasingly sophisticated and technically complex bikes are available in a range of specifications from manufacturers all over the world, delivered to your doorstep, why would you build your own? Well, Alan Anderson thinks you should. His book, How to Build a Bike in a Weekend, is out now, and it takes you step by step through how and why you should do it. Alan joins us now, along with Ruler's tech expert and digital editor, Peter Stewart. So, Alan, build your own bike in 2021, really? Absolutely, yeah. And uh, never been a better time, I would say. It's the most incredibly satisfying thing to do. It's the way to get most out of your cycling, in my experience. And um, there's a lot, to, uh, particularly a lot around eBay and the ease with which you can find parts online, which make it easier to do now than it's ever been before, I think. Peter, what do you reckon? Well, I think it's uh, definitely an interesting proposition. It's really easy to kind of go out there and see that, you know, you get an Altega group set on this bike and it weighs that much. And so that means it's the best thing available. You know, these days, bikes are becoming more and more kind of uh, you know, generic. And one bike's just like the next one, even between brands. And so to make something truly unique and you know, make it your own, I think building itself from scratch is a really, really interesting interesting way to approach it and obviously some people take it even further by building their own frames you know on these courses that various people offer and actually having something completely of their own um but it's something that admittedly has fallen by the wayside a bit in recent years and i think you've seen that builds from scratch uh just because of the cost of them it's historically it used to be kind of much of muchness and now it's you know vastly more expensive in theory to build a bike but and then i think also kind of the trend for hand-built wheels that used to be a big part of the whole building your own bike phenomenon 
is dropped by the wayside because handbuilt wheels sort of gone out of fashion for various reasons. But um, and I'd be interested to hear Alan's perspective on that actually, with, you know, how that plays into the whole idea. I'm interested by what you say about it sort of now being the pricing now being much for muchness. But I guess just to return to your first question, in I, th I think the reason, the best reason, is because if you make the bike yourself, then you'll ride it much more and you'll enjoy riding it much more. I think you get the feeling that you've got something unique that really suits you. That is just, to my mind or to my posterior or my saddle, that's much more attractive than a, a, a bike that you buy off the peg, so to speak. But to, um, yeah, to get back to your point, Peter, about the, the price, you know, with a bit of shopping around on the internet, I think it, it is actually cheaper to go building yourself just about. You have to sort of make some compromises in terms of what you can do secondhand. But there's a lot of gear, as you know, out there, which really is just as good secondhand as it is when it's new. There's no harm in going with a, a secondhand front derailleur or something like that, because it's just not going to have worn out in the same way as a chain will have or a wheel will have. Yeah, so the bikes that I've made, I think, have been really quite good value for money compared to the sort of the list price of comparable bikes. Now, I'm going to um, own up here. I haven't actually bought a bike, a complete bike, um, for as long as I can remember. I always build my own. But my bikes are not particularly sophisticated. Uh, there aren't, yeah, none of them have uh, disc brakes or electric uh, gears i'm also um, a qualified bike mechanic and i've got like 40 years worth of tools in the cellar you know for everyday people who've never done it before how practical is it you're right about the tool question because you need to at the same time as you're shopping for parts you need to be aware of what tools you're going to need i was in a similar situation to you i guess in that i always repaired my own bikes for many years and i had picked up most of the tools i needed over that time I think if you plan a little bit ahead and just make sure that you have the full range of hex keys and things that you'll need to hand before you start, it's not too expensive and you can get those massive all-in-one briefcase kits, which are amazingly cheap to my eye anyway. And also the, there's, it's become much easier now than it used to be. I think the, the hex key, the fact that nearly everything now gets fitted with a hex key is much easier than it used to be. Uh, when you were fiddling around with different kinds of nuts and bolts. But one thing that is more difficult, I think, is that in the old days, if you like, uh, one most bike frames fitted most parts, or you know, most parts would fit to most bike frames. But now there's such a range of different systems, some of which are compatible, some of which are not, you know, countless different bottom brackets and things like that. Absolutely, and that, that was something I was really conscious of when I was writing the book and building my own bikes was stopping to check compatibility the whole time. So if you look at the back of the book, there are various checklists there, so which force you when you're ticking things off in order to assemble your bike to stop and make sure that this wheel will take that, et cetera, you know, the, all of the compatibility issues that exist. It's really frustrating. And they don't, they seem to almost enjoy inventing new standards which clash the, uh, the bicycle manufacturers, which is, as you know, um, perpetual frustration now i think most people would um associate building your own bike with steel frames um but you say you know people can do uh, can build carbon bikes as well yeah i think that my main criteria was how long it's going to last because i view it as the, the bikes i've had i've had for a really long time and that's what i love about them that there's a you build up a relationship with the machine over time and you do thousands and thousands of miles and it's got all these memories embedded in it. 
that's what I think the reader's aiming for there, that kind of bike. Therefore, you're looking for something which will last a long time, therefore steel, a good steel frame automatically, but also a good carbon frame if looked after and you don't crash, should in theory last forever too. The difference is aluminium, of course, which just will over time flex and flex and give way and, and fail. That's, as I understand it, that's an inevitability with aluminium. So we steered away from that in the book. But yeah, I mean, I love steel. I love the properties of it as a ride. But obviously carbon is light and strong and, and whizzy and people love it too. Yeah, it's strong. But also if you know one over-tightened bolt and there's 3,000 quid's worth of carbon frame that's unusable. Absolutely. Uh, and that is, again, something which I, I raise in the book. So both of the examples which we work through in the course of the book are steel frames. There's one which is, it's a Genesis equilibrium frame to begin with, and there's one which is um, a light blue frame from that uh, company in uh, Cambridge, I think they are. Um, both really nice sort of steel frames, not wildly expensive, but both of them really nice ride and should last forever in theory. It's quite interesting, we're probably only getting now to the point where uh, the bikes that were made like 12 years ago from carbon are actually now on the second-hand market and still around. And probably that's made a big difference. And actually, part of that's like price point, which is what they're on, because I think maybe I was talking more about buying a new bike, frame only, retail, yeah. retail which is still obviously incredibly expensive, because they want to discourage you from doing that effectively because yeah. they want to buy their OEM spec. But it's funny that I think when people have this association of carbon being low quality, it was because of a much earlier generation of carbon that was made in more rudimentary ways and you know didn't have the same controls and the materials wasn't there and various reasons. And um, I think those were often prone to cracking and sort of degraded over time and the resins kind of like, you know, lost their quality. And, but in theory, you know, uh, Alan's right, uh, you know, carbon actually has an infinite fatigue life. So you can bend it a billion times and it should never get any more flexy in theory. You know, the UV degrades the resins, but even then the better resins are UV protected effectively. And so there's no reason if a carbon bike is well built that it should really degrade that much. And then I think now we're seeing bikes from 15, 10 years ago that are still here and actually it is a much more tempting proposition. But I think at the same time, the only thing that probably makes it still a bit more appealing is just that ability to repair it so easily, whereas carbon yeah. repair is always a bit always a bit of a mess really, especially with, you know, like cracks around bolts and things. It's, yeah, it's tough to, I think, be, re be assured that it's actually going to be effective. Or exactly, exactly. Even if you fix it, how do you then trust it? How do you know that it's not going to fail catastrophically? It's a, it's a nasty worry to have when you're beetling along at 20 mph, isn't it? Generally, what's the most difficult bit of building a bike at home, would you say? Bar tape. I think that's the only skill which actually is a skill which you acquire with your hands. Do you know what I mean? Everything else, it's, it's, a, it's a variation on bolting together. And most of the time you're bolting together parts which are really well made, flush, and you know, once you sit down and look at them and work out how they're supposed to work, it's all very clear. You just don't over-tighten them, you don't cross-thread them, you grease your nuts and bolts. But bar tape can be a pig, and it took me a long time to learn how to do it. And interestingly, I was, I was taught by one of the mechanics at um, Cranks, the bike workshop down here in Brighton, who had been a bike mechanic of many years standing, and he told me, which I'd be interested to hear your take on, that most bike shops have one person who specialises in bar tape and does all the bar tape and the other ones just leave it alone because uh, it can be hideous. I think no matter how long um, you've been putting bar tape on, you always mess up at some point, you know. It, it doesn't, in my experience, it doesn't get easier. That's a really depressing thought. That's just something that people get so passionate about, isn't it? I think, and I've 
the past when I'm, we've done like your know, YouTube videos about how to write bar, rap bar tape, it's one of people get livid and they're like, no, no, you have to cut the strip off here and put that below the lever hood and that's how you, and other people, now you do the figure of eight in the reverse and then all these different philosophies and it's, uh, it's definitely an acquired skill. I think my experience, one thing people don't get is you have to keep tension on the tape when you do it and that's the key thing, making sure the tension's gone on throughout eventually you know it's it's held in place that way often most of the time i guess it's just, it's just already slack so it's just going to come and unravel in your hands but um yeah i don't know plus other things going wrong though do you ever get kind of like a uh, pet peeves where you see bikes that have been built or you know, even i think you know canyon bikes the one thing you see is a dust cover behind the cassette that i always see that and i'm like oh you know take that off that's not meant to be there that's just, uh, it has no functional purpose it's, it's not to protect the spokes from the chain from the cassette or anything like that it's just the dust I think maybe like you know long long break kind of cable and stuff can be quite frustrating when you see it or like badly clamped kind of uh cable niffles is there anything like that you find that's just like kind of sets you off when you see it yeah I, I find it really really sad when you can hear a bike squeaking there was one yesterday and I nearly stopped the guy at the lights and said look please just oil your chain you know do something about it because your bike's making so much noise and it's quite nice underneath all that rust basic maintenance just keeping the chain moving and keeping it nicely um, lubricated is that's a real trigger for me when people don't do it because it can destroy the whole, whole bike you know and it's so simple to do i was gonna ask if a, you know because obviously you've got this historic legacy of developed group sets and developed engineering i mean like for, for you where's the sweet spot in terms of like bike uh, building if you're buying old bike stuff because i know that some people they think well eight speed was you know as, as good as it got in terms of efficiency and like maintenance and not need to clean the chain so much and things lasting longer and then are you like anti-discs or pro kind of, you know, less, less, less uh, speed? I, I was friction shifting with handles on the down tube for a long time. When I switched to indexed shifters on the handlebars, that was just amazing. I mean, I've got to say it really was amazing. So I think I like that. I'm not persuaded by having 30 available gear ratios or anything like that and again i'm not persuaded by electronic group sets either i think that what what you can get with a mechanical group set is certainly efficient enough and you know i'm not in the pro peloton i'm never going to be so a, a tiny tiny marginal gain is irrelevant to me yeah sort of 10 speed and 10 speed cassette and um nicely indexed gears on the handlebars is is about all i need and it's probably what most people need, isn't it? I mean, most people do not need the very latest professional kit. No, absolutely. And you wait, you know, a few years and it filters down towards the lower end group sets. And uh, and that's where, for me, the sweet I guess in answer to your question, that's where the sweet spot is. You just wait a couple of years and then everything's as good as the high end was five years before. I like 10 speed and above, but what I don't like is the chains that come with them especially with Campagnolo, where you have to buy an incredibly expensive tool to fit your new ultra-thin chain. And if you don't use it, then, you know, you, even if you do use it, sometimes you break the blooming chain. But uh, if, you, if you don't use it, then you're definitely going to. Yeah, and I, I'd, I had successfully blocked that Campagnolo Powerlink system, whatever it is they, their trade name is, out from my memory because the memories were so traumatic. Uh, yeah, and having to spend, it's upwards of 100 quid, that tool, isn't it? For something where there are such good alternatives which cost next to nothing, that that's really frustrating. Uh, so, yeah, so I'm, like you, I guess, I moved away from Campagnolo chains for that reason, although I've got the Campagnolo group set on one bike. Yeah, that sort of propriety system where there's no improvement. And also, with you know, you know that that's going to go away in about five years, isn't it? I mean, because it's 
surely it's not taken off. Peter, what do you reckon? Is there anything that you miss out um, by building your own bike at home rather than, you know, anything that you practically miss out by building your bike at home rather than buying one off the shelf? I think with the modern bike, it's gone in a certain direction, which is kind of like that integration of parts for aerodynamic gains and, you know, the the kind of new versatility where you can go from like a, a 26 mil tire to a 42 mil tire and you know then kind of you know disc brakes and you know there's less of that on the second hand market and hydraulics and di2 but in some ways i think it's uh, it's almost like two different genres and i think that looking at the modern bike market now i often think that's people say you know, get angry about disc brakes and things and i'm like well i think disc brakes they represent the modern side and i think automated disc brakes everything more self-contained it's more like buying a golf or something you know it's, it's it's something that's taken care of but then some people still love to have their old mg and like have a classic car and i think bicycles are exactly the same and you know they do exactly the same thing and you can have far more fun in a in a classic car and i think you can have a lot more fun on an older bike if that's something that you enjoy and you really love and you like seeing it and sometimes, you know, you get a lot more for your money in a sense, and you boil it down to the basic riding experience. You can spend 800 pounds, 1,000 pounds building a really fantastic, more classic bike. And, you know, chances are it'll be lighter, probably more comfortable, potentially stiffer than something new that's like 2,000 pounds. So I think there's a trade-off, but it just comes down to taste. And uh, if you want the cutting edge, you know, I think there's marginal gains and it's better. But it, yeah, it's just, a, in my mind, it's a split into two categories now. We're increasing our classic bicycles and modern cutting-edge aerodynamic bicycles. I think you're, you're, the sort of the prices you identify there are exactly the sort of sweet spot for the person who will want to build their own bike. You're interested enough in cycling to take it a bit seriously, but you know the idea of spending more than £2,000 or £2,000 on a bike is, is just a bit difficult. And that's certainly sort of where I am and where I've been for a long time, that sort of that sort of price range. The idea of making a, 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 a two grand bike for about a thousand quid or a bit less is very appealing. Thank you, Alan. Thank you, Peter. Um, it's a lovely afternoon. I may go and ride my home-built steel-framed fixed gear outside. Um, How to Build a Bike in a Weekend by Alan Anderson is published by Lawrence King and it's out now. <laughs>